to our sermon for the fourth Sunday in Advent, God's Housing Project, Love's Lodging. First section, Love's Initiative, Right Motive, Wrong Method. Advent looks forward to the Lord's coming. Each year we celebrate Jesus' birth at Bethlehem in the past, but we also look forward to his return in the future, for he rose from the dead after dying in our place, and thus proving to be God's unique Son with power. Even though Jesus' parents came from Nazareth in Galilee, he was born in Bethlehem about 130 kilometers or 80 miles to the south to make a point, namely that he was of the lineage and heritage of King David who came from there. Our scripture reading this week picks up the thread of the prophecy to King David that would reach down 10 centuries to enwrap Jesus in its implications. More than that, it reaches down 20 centuries further to have implications for us here today. Love takes initiative. We see that in David's inclination, once he's become established in his rule over Israel and Judah, to extend to the emblems pertaining to the worship of Yahweh a degree of protection similar to that he's come to enjoy. 2 Samuel 7 says, After the king was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies round about, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a palace of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. Get the picture? David's all comfortable in a finely built cedar palace. But he doesn't stop at becoming preoccupied with his own comfort. He gets out of himself enough to start to give consideration to the housing of the most precious worship items, the Ark of the Covenant, the altar for sacrifices, the incense altar, and so on. These things are just housed in tents, literally within curtains. Kind of like your old beater four-door is in a nice new garage while the Rolls-Royce is stuck outside, barely wrapped in a tarp. The incongruity of it strikes David. With our theme word this fourth Sunday of Advent being love, note love's perception. It thinks about more than itself. It gets over itself. Its concern stretches beyond its own comfort to others. From 1 Corinthians 13, love is kind. It is not self-seeking. It always protects. Love is able to forget oneself enough to be truly concerned about the other. So it takes initiative. While David's impulse eventually gets redirected, he is never rebuked by God for his initiative to protect the items at the heart of Israel's worship. 1 Kings 8.18, Solomon recalls, For the Lord said to my father David, Because it was in your heart to build a temple for my name, you did well to have this in your heart. God approved of David's concern. Love takes initiative. Here's a short three-minute video from a Dutch pharmaceutical company that, without much dialogue, conveys powerfully the message that love gets out of itself, takes initiative, and makes an effort to express affection for those it's directed towards. It's called Take Care from DocMorris.de.
Love perceives and takes initiative. It stretches itself to put love into action towards the beloved. However, David's impulse to build a temple meets with a coarse correction from the Almighty. Uh, through the prophet Nathan, God points out he's been mobile from the very start, not lodged or restricted in one place. 2 Samuel 7, 4-7 That night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving about from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Moreover, wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any other rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Folklore puts genies in bottles, but God cannot and will not be put in a box. Gods of pagan nations had their temples, but the God of Israel was not like those silent, lifeless images. God is dynamic, not static. He moves about and can be present to us wherever we are. Sometimes, if we're not careful, we can fall into this trap of putting God in a box, compartmentalizing him, letting him into a, a few areas and time frames of our life, but trying to keep him out of others. It's like having a certain number of boxes on a checklist and checking them off, the list of our religious obligations. There, I went to church Sunday, checked that one off the list, said a prayer before I fell asleep. Well, at least I think I finished it before I fell asleep. Check that off the list. Drove my kids to Sunday school. What's well, all the religious education they need? Who needs family devotions anyway? Check that off the list. Do we view such things as gotta do religious obligations to be checked off the list as quickly as possible so we can get on with the rest of life? What we really want to do? You're limiting God, trying to squeeze or corral him into tight-fitting boundaries, and it won't work. God isn't a tame cattle beast, but a powerful, free lion. Think Aslan in Chronicles of Narnia for defense. God says to David, I have not dwelt in a house. I have been moving from place to place. I have moved with all the Israelites. We daresn't try to box God in. What expectations about church or worship or personal devotions have you allowed to encroach around your spiritual life that are hampering God's free and sovereign movement? In what areas of your life have you said to him, Thus far you may come and no further? Don't be surprised as the Lord begins to blow the walls off. Next section. Love moves, building the other. In verses 8 to 11, the Lord turns the tables on David and begins to describe how he, the Lord, is going to build a house or dynasty or name for David, rather than David building a house for him. I find at least seven things God says he's done or going to do for David. Thus we see love builds the other up, moves in action, upholding and strengthening the other. Verse 8, number 1. I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. God raised David from humble origins, bottom of the social scale, being a shepherd. Verse 9, number 2. I have been with you wherever you have gone. God made David so successful over Israel's enemies, including Philistine giants like Goliath, that he became very famous. 
Number three, I've cut off all your enemies from before you. North, south, east, west, in all directions, David's enemies were defeated. Number four, now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men of the earth. David is still honored today. In fact, my oldest brother is named David. Verse 10, number five, I will provide a place for my people Israel. Invaders that had taken towns and lands were driven back. Number six, and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own. Number seven, and no longer be disturbed. Wicked men, people will not oppress them anymore. This is the promise of future protection, such as David's son Solomon enjoyed. David's future descendants that ruled Judah governed until its overthrow by Babylon in 586 BC, hundreds of years later. Love seeks to build the other person up, not tear them down or take advantage of them. Love is on the move, active, supporting and strengthening the other. 1 Corinthians 13, 4, love is patient. It is not envy. It is not proud. It rejoices with the truth. It always protects. A 36-year-old mother was discovered to be in the advanced stages of terminal cancer. One doctor advised her to spend her remaining days enjoying herself on a beach in Acapulco. A second physician offered her the hope of living two to four years with the grueling side effects of chemotherapy and radiation treatment. She penned these words to her three small children. She said, I've chosen to try to survive for you. This has some horrible costs, including pain, loss of my good humor, and, and moods I won't be able to control. But I must try this, if only on the outside chance that I might live one minute longer. And that minute could be the one you might need me when no one else will do. For this I intend to struggle, tooth and nail, so help me God. Next section. The love kingdom has legs. Well, that's all fine and good for King David and the people of Israel and Judah back then, but what's it got to do with us here today? Verses 11 and 16 make it clear God's not looking just at the present nation, but into the future. David's initiative was to build a house for God's worship, but God instead is going to build an enduring house for David. 2 Samuel 7, 11 and 16 says, The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Wow, now we're talking a much longer time frame. Subsequent Old Testament prophets applied this to Israel's hope for a Messiah, the Christ, a Savior who would deliver them from their enemies, much the same as King David had. Micah, roughly 720 BC, chapter 5, verse 4, says, He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. Ezekiel, roughly 590 B.C., chapter 37, verse 26, I'll make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant. I will establish them and increase their numbers, and I will put my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Do you see there is getting to be less emphasis on place or geography and more on relationship, uh, a witness? 
After Jesus is born, prophecy and the Holy Spirit's inspiration begins to apply the promise made to David, specifically to Jesus of Nazareth. When the angel Gabriel announces to Mary she's going to become pregnant miraculously, God's messenger states, Luke 1.32, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. That house connection is being made particularly through Jesus. The New Testament writers apply the prophecies directly to Jesus. Hebrews 1.8, citing Psalm 45, verse 6, says, But about the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. Usually when we use the word kingdom, we think about a political entity, a region that can be outlined on a map with particular geographic borders. When you're inside those lines, you're in the kingdom, but outside you're not part of the kingdom. Like UK or the United Kingdom. When you hit the North Sea or English Channel, you've left the territory. But to talk about Christ's kingdom that way would be in some ways to again try to put God in a box. How do the New Testament Holy Spirit-inspired writers talk about the kingdom? Matthew 12:28, Jesus says, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come to you. Luke 6.20 Then he looked up at his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Luke 13.18-21 Then Jesus asked, What is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air perched in its branches. Again he asked, What shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It is like yeast the woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. Not static or fixed, but dynamic, alive, growing. One more from Jesus, Luke seventeen twenty. Once, having been asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, The kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation, nor will people say, Here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. Not something you can point to or locate on a map, but something relational, a happening. We might say, a space or relationship where God's in-chargeness is evident. How did the Apostles John and Peter put it? John in Revelation 1, 5-6 says, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. What's the kingdom here? Us. Jesus' followers. We are a kingdom and priests, John says. Is God in charge of your life? Then his kingdom is present in you. Are you consciously serving him as a priest? A priest does not exist solely in reference to themselves, but in relationship to God and others as a sort of mediator. Of course, Jesus is our great high priest, but he calls us out of ourselves, cracking our cozy cocoons to care for others and love God with our entire being. We see similar language in Peter's first letter, 
1 Peter 2, 5 and 9. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Ah, it's a spiritual house. We offer spiritual sacrifices, declaring God's praises, being royal or kingly connected priests. In short, God's vision is not just to establish David and his descendants as a royal dynasty here, to protect the Jewish people and give them a permanent homeland in Palestine. God's vision reaches through David to Jesus the Messiah, who would give his life to redeem sinners from all nations, Gentiles as well as Jews, to become their Lord and Savior so we would live for him and from him to others moment by moment. Kingdom of Christ becomes tangible on earth by his grace through us as we walk in dependent, trusting obedience, leaning on him, listening to his spirit. Next section, love as he loved us. The Apostle John in his letters has much to say about love understood through a Christian lens. For instance, 1 John 3, 16 to 18. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. In enacting Christ's love in our context, God's kingdom touches down. It's not just a concept, not just a, a warm, fuzzy feeling. It's real and lived out, that yeast or mustard seed alive and spreading out, touching others. A man who had been the superintendent of a city rescue mission for 40 years was asked why he had spent his life working with dirty, unkempt, profane, drunken derelicts. He said, all I'm doing is giving back to others a little of the love God has shown to me. As a young man, he himself had been a drunkard who went into a mission for a bowl of chili. There he heard the preacher say that Christ could save sinners, and he stumbled forward to accept the Lord Jesus as a Savior. Though his brain was addled by drink, he felt a weight lifted from his shoulders, and that day he became a changed person. A little later, seeking God's will for his life, he felt the Lord calling him to go back to the gutter and reach the people still wallowing there. The power of redeeming love enabled him to carry on his ministry for 40 years. Let's pray. How vast, Lord, is the height and depth and breadth of your love for us and all the world. How unworthy we are to receive your commissioning and how ill-equipped we feel in our own resources to carry it out. We need you so much. We need more of your love. We confess the unloveliness of much of our sinful thoughts and desires. Help us get out of ourselves to discover the wonderful things your kingdom is waiting to do through us, touching others with your power and kindness. In Jesus' name, amen.